that means to imitate him. And this runs, I am very sensitized to the fact that this runs in the complete opposite direction of the entitled self-assertiveness that our Western culture kind of reinforces at every turn. But this is a dynamic that will radically change your, the posture of your heart, and it's radically countercultural if you choose to embrace it. And so when Jesus says, follow me, he's saying, imitate me, walk in my footsteps. And that's not just mimicry where we use Jesus or some trappings of the Christian religion as accessories to our lives. We're actually learning to place Jesus and his priorities at the center. We're seriously pursuing Jesus, who he is, what he has for us, what he values. And I'm learning to wed that with who I am called to be as an image bearer of God. And we've looked at how to break down that immense vision, because it is a big vision. The the vision for the Christian life is astoundingly broad and deep. And for many people, it's overwhelming. And so what I've been doing over these last few weeks is to try and break down that vision into steps that anybody can take. And these steps or practices or spiritual disciplines are things that will help us follow Jesus, help us grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, help us to become more Christ-like in character, but at the same time, as we become more Christ-like, we also become the truest versions of ourselves in him. We discover who we are. And as a result of that, we experience the fruit of new life and healing and forgiveness and joy and peace as Jesus and his love and his lordship takes over the throne of our heart. So we've looked at the spiritual disciplines of word and prayer, Bible and prayer, sometimes called devotional time, where we're taking time to intentionally connect with God in a private and personal way. We've looked at the disciplines of simplicity and giving, and simplicity much more about focus than it is about minimalism. Simplicity of heart, having a clear focus to seek first the kingdom of God, and then to pattern our lives off of the example of Jesus, who gives and loves and serves. And I want to end our little mini-series on verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 in Ephesians by looking at solitude and spiritual friendship, kind of two sides of the same coin. So what is solitude, and why is it important? Why should you care about it? Uh, Solitude, uh, one definition that I think is simple and, and to the point is Solitude is the intentional withdrawal from social engagement. So it's whenever we place ourselves at a distance from engaging with other people. And now I have to add the caveat, whether that's in real life or via social media. Just no social engagement. And we're doing that to create space. And it is isolation but it's isolation with a purpose in order to commune with God. Why is it important? Well, Jesus does it repeatedly in his ministry. The Gospels tell us that he, he would often go away to a desert place or a deserted place or a wilderness place. He leaves the crowds. And in Mark six thirty one, he also invites his disciples to do the same. He says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. There's a rhythm of engagement and disengagement right? Stimulation, relaxation, activation, rest, that is important that we see Jesus modeling in his example to us of what it means to be fully human. And he invites those who follow him to do the same. One person that I was reading this week said, solitude 
is really important because ceaseless immersion in society is exhausting and it actually drains the health of the soul. We need to break away from the crowd now and again and to find rest from always orienting our thoughts and actions and behaviors in reference to other people. So why is solitude important? Four quick reasons. Number one, solitude will actually help you become more attentive to God's voice and promptings in your life. The world is a very noisy, busy place. Our days are often filled with noise and words. There are words coming at us from all directions, from loved ones, words popping up on our smartphone, blasting on the car radio, on the television, um, on the bottom of your computer screen. Every nook and cranny of our life is filled with words and engagement and, and the offer to engage. We are constantly being given messages messages about what we should do, what we should think, what we should be. And in the midst of this kind of din that for us kind of becomes a sort of white noise that we just get used to, it can be difficult to hear the voice of God, to maybe even identify our own voice and to even clear our own head and begin to identify, what do I actually think about these things? When there's constant input, it's hard to become attentive to God's voice and sometimes even our own, right? And there's so much static, it's hard to tune into frequencies that are faint and that are gentle. And you can no more hear these faint voices in the clatter and crash of a life full of noise than you can hear a whisper across the room of a nightclub. And so spirit-led guidance and insight and personal revelation, those are sort of like very fragile bubbles that kind of come up to the surface of our awareness and our hearts and our minds. But noise, when it's constant, can act like a wall of spikes that just pops those bubbles all the time. And we slowly become disconnected and feel an experiential distance between a sense of closeness with God and even a sense of settledness within ourselves. We feel more tense, we feel anxious, we feel uh, unsettled, we feel active and engaged. There's always something to engage with and to talk about and to respond to, but we feel less and less grounded in our own selves. So we need solitude to kind of clear the rubble in our heads and in our hearts so that it's easier for us to become aware of promptings that God might be putting on our heart. Number two, solitude helps us develop greater self-awareness. Without solitude and a practice of trying to reflect and become aware of what's going on in our own interiority, in our heads and in our hearts, right? The practice of confession and introspection. Today our culture calls it mindfulness or becoming conscious. The scripture just calls it introspection and um, kind of looking to God and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal things that, that are kind of the undercurrents. What are the tectonic plates emotionally that are kind of driving underneath the surface? If we don't set aside times for solitude, then it's very difficult to grow in self-awareness. And self-awareness is really important for your own health, for the ways that you love and care for other people, because if you're not self-aware of fear that is driving your behavior, or maybe anxiety, or anger, or jealousy, then you can't confront it. 
And when you're not aware of something, you can't confront it, which means it will just continue to kind of wreak havoc in your life without your awareness, and you just get caught in these cycles where you're like, why is this always a mess? Why am I always lashing out in anger? Why am I um, hesitant in this relationship or in this context? And so solitude gives us a chance to kind of get space so that we can say, God, search my heart. See if there is any way in me that is crooked that needs to be reformed and amended by your grace. Bring things to the surface that I'm... I'm living with a kind of a blind spot too. Now this is also a reason why a lot of us resist silence and we do fill up our lives with constant stimulation because there are people who are simply afraid of what they're going to encounter when they're left alone, kind of in a spiritually and an emotionally naked way in the presence of God and with themselves. And so out of fear of just being made aware of some of the chaos in their own lives. They will just continue to be busy, to do more, to always surround themselves with stimulation so that they can be forever distracted. That's certainly a pattern in certain uh, seasons of my life. Looking at the pain, looking at the woundedness, looking at the confusion, being honest with God about the anger that is going on in my heart, that takes a certain amount of courage and energy And it's just easier to numb out with a video game, with a television show, with whatever, all kinds of distractions. But living with a lack of self-awareness that will be the result of living without solitude will cripple you in your life on so many fronts, right? The more we understand ourselves, the better able we are to wisely address places of need and crookedness or places that need healing in our lives so that we can grow, learn to receive God's love and forgiveness and extend that in a more fruitful way to other people. Number three, solitude is really important because there are certain gifts from God that you can only receive in the context of solitude. For how many people here would you say some of your best ideas and insights come to you in the shower? Anybody else have that experience? Yeah? Why is that? Well, in the shower, we are relaxed. We're away from human inputs. We're doing something fairly mundane, but often just kind of repetitive. And we're kind of open to insights that I just don't think you can receive when you're actively engaging your mind and trying to learn something or think through something. Um, Being in that kind of relaxed posture allows certain things to come before us. And if you avoid solitude, you're avoiding one of the main contexts in which God can bring something to mind gently and just kind of bring it to your awareness. Or even place an idea or the seed of something in your life and say, hey, you know, make this phone call. Maybe a person comes to mind. Maybe an opportunity that you've been praying about. Suddenly there's kind of a breakthrough. There's a little turn of like, oh, I haven't thought about that. Maybe a scripture comes to mind. It's often in these places of solitude where we're relaxed in the presence of God and not actively trying to do or accomplish anything that something, that there's a gift for us in those moments. Those are often the moments where God can reveal new possibilities, new potential to us. And number four, solitude deepens friendships. 
And this is something I heard when I was younger, reading a book that I'll talk about in a second, but I didn't, I don't, I didn't appreciate it as much until I got maybe into my 30s. If you take time to intentionally grow in solitude, even if you start with five minutes a day and working up, and you learn to become comfortable in the presence of God by yourself, you learn to face some of the things that you need to face, you learn to be relaxed with yourself and in God's presence, one of the things that happens is relationships change. And the way, the, the way they change is that you no longer need that person. There's a, there's a lot, there's a, the, the neediness of the relationship diminishes in a positive way because you are being filled up with a deeper connection with God. And it's a deeper experiential connection with God. Not maybe every time of year in solitude, but over time it builds and you feel strengthened in the Lord. And what that allows you to do is to not move into relationships having to extract need because I'm so desperate, I'm so empty, I need you to, and I need you to fill this thing in my life and I need you to fill this thing in my life. We go into solitude, we are strengthened and we're recharged and now I'm free to move into a relationship being the person who gives gifts and gives attention and gives care. I'm able to be in the relationship from a place of fullness and strength and overflow, not a place of deficiency. And so solitude, even though it's intentional separation from social engagement, it strengthens my ability to move into those relationships in a much healthier and stronger way. Because I'm, I'm freeing the other person from having to be something for me in my life because I have a deeper connection with God. We move into relationships from fullness with something to offer instead of with emptiness needing to get something and then placing a burden on that other person which they're likely never going to be able to meet and never going to be able to satisfy. Now I've talked about the first and second half of life stages before a number of years ago and talking about how the spiritual challenges are slightly different in the first half versus the second half of life. Solitude is important for everybody to learn to cultivate, but I think especially for those of us in the second half of life, somewhere 35 or 40 and beyond. We need more and more solitude the older we get because there's more and more um, factors that have to be pulled in, more and more experiences, more and more reflections, more and more patterns that begin to emerge. And so solitude is important to cultivate as a discipline early in life, but I would argue it's essential to spiritual and emotional health as we continue to grow older so that we're learning and seeing patterns and God is strengthening us. And as we're getting older, we're actually moving into that renewed relationship with Jesus that is allowing us to love and serve other people. Now, I don't want to imply that solitude is the only context through which God forms us and maybe uh, speaks to us. And even using that language, I know that there's a, a broad spectrum of when I say something like God's voice, God speaking to us, uh, there, people have different grids for what that means. When I say that, I'm usually referring to what I would just call promptings of the heart. Uh, I've never heard God's voice audibly. I've had experiences where scripture is read or something has come to mind and I, w I have felt a very strong sense, like almost like a burden on my chest that it feels like God is putting something on my heart. That's the language that I would say. And that's my shorthand for saying, you know, God's speaking to me. I verify it in scripture. I share it with other people. Um, and 
so I, again, I don't want to set this expectation that solitude is this kind of uh, hyper-spiritual, I'm by myself and I'm hearing the voice of God. Solitude is often very awkward at the start because we don't do it very often, so it just seems boring because it feels like nothing is happening. But as we just learn, and that's why I start small, five minutes, three minutes, build. As we learn to inhabit that space, we actually become more comfortable and it's like all the dust that's kind of, you know, work a snow globe <laughs> and, and the, everything's ch- churning on the inside. And solitude, the practice of it, slowly allows all those things to settle so that you find yourself able to better focus on what matters most and then contemplate all the areas of your life, reading scripture, praying, that they just all become enhanced so that you can then move out into life from a place of feeling kind of grounded and not just kind of tossed to and fro by different factors that are happening in your life. So when I spend time in solitude, it's often not sitting and doing nothing um, because I don't find that's helpful for me. And many people I've talked to need to do something else in solitude that is generally uh, kind of mundane and repetitive but allows them to kind of be active in some ways. So many people will go for a walk, right? Not high exertion exercise, but just a walk by themselves and just be relaxed in the presence of God. Pray a little bit, be silent, think about stuff. Other people I've talked to said knitting or even doing the dishes or playing music or just doodling and drawing. But there's no goal at the end of it, right? Like when I say play music, you're not like practicing a song or trying to write something. It's just fiddling. It's just doing something that's mundane and slightly repetitive that allows you to just kind of relax. You got to find what that is. And then just doing that for five minutes, half an hour, whatever feels fruitful for you. With the only rule being, again, we're not talking about vegging out right? So being by yourself and just vegging out and watching Netflix or something, that's not solitude. Solitude is a lack of social engagement so that you can be in your own thoughts before God. One of the memories that I had of doing this, and I don't do it anymore um, for for different reasons, um, but when I was in high school, I developed the habit. I would come home come in the house. I was often the first one home. I was home by myself for about a half an hour, not for the whole half an hour, but for maybe 10 or 15 minutes. I don't even know how I got started. I would go to our front window and there was a couch and I would just kind of reverse myself on the couch and stare at the window and I would just stare there. And I don't even know when it started, but I remember really enjoying that time. And sometimes I would only stare at the window for five minutes. And it was just, it wasn't a view or anything. It was just like a road and then another row of apartments but I would just stare out the window and I would let my mind relax. And I remember at the time, probably not being able to articulate it, but I would say those were really, although I wasn't being as intentional as I would have been about it now, those were times of solitude for me. There wasn't anybody around. I wasn't trying to accomplish anything. I wasn't trying to distract myself away. I was just kind of sitting and thinking about my day. And sometimes I would sit there and stare out the window for 20 minutes. Sometimes it would probably be, you know, two minutes. But what it looks like for you is going to be slightly different, but it's just getting yourself in a relaxed posture away from the crowds and people and just bringing to God what you need to bring to God. Now, closely related to solitude, ironically, is the spiritual discipline of spiritual friendship or what some Christians might call fellowship. 
So I want to talk about that. What is spiritual friendship and why is it important? Well, spiritual friendship is having a deep connection and experiencing a deep connection of friendship that develops when two people journey together in their pursuit or discipleship of Jesus. So it's a deep connection that develops when two people journey together in their discipleship to Jesus. And that journey is marked by three characteristics. Courage, care, and vulnerability. Courage, because in the context of pursuing Jesus together, you speak the truth and love to each other. You're not afraid to call each other out on things or to gently confront um, areas of um, inconsistency or immaturity in the other person. Care, because you understand that Part of the heart of every good friendship is to carry one another's burdens. Paul talks about that in Galatians 6.2. This is the relationship that you are learning to care for the other person. And vulnerability in that you are appropriately, as the relationship deepens in uh, trust, you are learning to confess your sins and your shortcomings and your faults to one another. James talks about that in James 5.16. Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. There's a healing that happens when we're in a high-trust relationship with someone and we can bring the most embarrassing, shameful, um, self-destructive patterns that we might be caught in to at least one other person and to have them be able to receive it and hold it and love us in and through that. And that's part of what a deep spiritual friendship offers us. Now, when I talk about spiritual friendship... I'm not talking about something that you're going to experience, well, A, very often, and B, across your, across your friendships in general. I've talked about different levels of relationships before, and we have many different levels of relationships in our lives, different levels of friendship, and they're all good. It's not like only the really intense, intimate ones matter and the other more social acquaintances don't. They all matter. They're all important. They're all different ways through which God blesses us and grows us and feeds us. But spiritual friendships are very, very rare because of the level of courage and the level of care and the level of vulnerability that they require to even kind of get the momentum started. And so when I talk about f- spiritual friends, I don't want people to think through the lens of, well, what Jeff's talking about, I hardly experience that. Like I have a lot of friends, but they're not, they're not like that level. And like that is normal. That, this is not the, my normative experience for friends that I have in my life. I can probably think of two, maybe three people that would be in this category that I've known for my whole life that would be what I would call this level of connection. So they're really rare. If you have one in your life, you should celebrate it as a gift because they are rare. A spiritual friendship at that level of connection is someone who gets you and they love you and they like you and they build you up and they, um, they challenge you almost indirectly to, um, to a greater and more sincere pursuit of Jesus in your own Christian walk. Some examples of biblical friendships that I think bear the evidence of kind of falling in these categories would be Ruth and Naomi, David and Jonathan for sure. Even Job with his friends who come to mourn with Job for days after the tragedies befall him. Elijah and Elisha. 
I mean, you have Jesus, obviously, with the 12 disciples, but even within that 12, the Gospels tell us that he would often uh, remove Peter, James, and John from within that circle of 12 to have other special experiences with, like the transfiguration. So even in Jesus' life, you see these levels of intimacy and connection with people playing out. Paul and Barnabas uh, playing out after the book of Acts. When I was in high school, no doubt the, the person that um, was my first experience of a real spiritual friendship was my f- best friend, Mike Garner. Mike and I had gone to school together since grade one, and from grade one to grade eight had always had a hot-cold relationship in the sense that we were both really competitive, we were both really annoying, we were both really prideful, we were both really dysfunctional in a lot of ways. So when we got along, we got along super well. And when we didn't get along, we were like, oh, you're the worst and cold shoulders for months at a time. So we had a very, uh, you know, best friend in grade two, more, you know, terrible enemies in grade three, back to best friends, that kind of relationship. But in grade nine, within six months, we both became Christians. I became Christian first in the, f- in the spring. And then Mike became a Christian about six months later in the summer. We both came from homes that were more or less secular, not, not religious, really. And as a result, we kind of tried to look at people around us that we knew who were Christians, some other people in their school who they had church connections, and we kind of stole and borrowed and figured out what to do and how to read the Bible. And it was a kind of jury-rigged Christianity. It was like, does this work? Okay. And we started co-discipling each other. We'd read the same devotional maybe not every morning, but most mornings, and walk 35 minutes of school together and talk about it, and then have school and do all kinds of fun, stupid things. Then we'd come home and talk about our experiences. We used to sit at the corner and stand at the corner, even in the dead of Kingston winter when the wind chill is like minus 72, and talk about, this is 14, 15 years old, we used to talk about our vision for our Christian lives. We were learning things about the Bible, and we had both had really uh, passive fathers, and we said, you know, we can't wait to be fathers one day and to be Christian husbands. And, and we, we would just dream about what it looked like, what it was going to look like for us to serve God together. We formed a youth group together, at, eventually at an Anglican church. We taught Sunday school together. We shared very similar interests and senses of humor. My wife will tell you when we get together, even today, it's like nothing, like no time has passed and no maturity has actually taken root in our life. <laughs> it's kind of like a, yeah, her, her expression sometimes. I, I can read the room and I look over at her and I'm like, oh, we're getting carried away. We gotta take this down a notch because we just bring out this weird, immature, silly sense of humor in each other. We totally get each other. He sent me an email this week just a, reminding me about a really random, obscure uh, Halloween costume that I had worn that I had forgotten about and just reading the email made me laugh. Mike is one of the most important relationships in my life. He was such a gift. But again, that isn't really normative. Again, I can only think of maybe two or three other people in my life that would fall into that category. You know, now, what's that, 25 years later. But spiritual friendships of this level are really important because number one, we're not meant to walk alone. We all need friends in our lives at all kinds of stages of intimacy, but we all need someone who really, really gets us at a fundamental level and loves us and likes us. You can't grow as a person simply by being 
in a strong relationship with God. One of the most profound um, statements in Scripture comes early in Genesis where Adam's by himself. He's in the garden. There's no rupture to his relationship with God. The fall has not happened yet. And up to this point in Scripture, God has been constantly making things and saying, this is good, this is very good, this is very good, this is very good. And then he sees Adam in the garden alone, and God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. It's the first not good of the Bible. And it's not that it's sinful, it's just an incompleteness. But again, Adam has full connection with God, and God's like, he still needs someone like him who can connect with him in a way that he can't connect with the animals. I think that's beautiful. We need, we're built for relationship. Yes, with God, but also with other people. And friendships with others are a critical ingredient to a healthy spiritual walk with Christ. Right? Jesus had friends. He had people who were very close to him that he loved dearly in a way that he didn't love the crowds just because of proximity and overlap of relationships and time spent together. Number two, spiritual friendships are a lifeline in times of darkness. Proverbs 18 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And the proverb is saying, you can have lots of friends. That's not a guarantee, though, that you're going to be secure and taken care of when the storms of life hit. You can have lots of people, and they might still scatter to the four corners of the earth once tribulation comes in your life. But there are people in your life, maybe only one person, but there's going to be someone, there's a, there can be a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That when those storms come, not if, but when, you are going to be able to count on this person. And I know that when the storms of life have come in my, li- in my life, Mike, you know, to reference that friendship from before, that person, I mean, he, he would come on a plane and come over here for me. And I, and I would for him. I know that. If, he, if I got an email or he said, I need you, can we connect? You know, that would be a high priority for me. In times of darkness, times of hardship, times of suffering, that's often when we discover who our relationships are of good friendships to that next level of deep spiritual connection. A book that I read when I was 17, I think, and Mike gave it to me, was Henry Nowen's Out of Solitude. Three Meditations of the Christian Life. It's a pretty short book. It's an easy read, really profound. Henry Nowen, a Catholic priest, really, really excellent writer. And I was looking at it uh, again this week because I hadn't revisited it in a few decades. And this is what he said about the kinds of people we remember, the kinds of friendships that leave an indelible mark in our lives. He says, when we honestly ask ourselves which person in our lives mean the most to us, We often find that it is those who, instead of giving advice or solutions or cures, have chosen rather to share our pain and touch our wounds with a warm and tender hand. The friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stand with us in an hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing and not curing, not healing, and face with us the reality of our powerlessness, that is a friend. Who cares? And that's what a spiritual friendship can offer us. Someone who will sit with us as Job's friend sat with Job and not offering cliches and trite slogans and using Bible verses as band-aids to our deep woundedness, but being able to be 
God's hands and feet and presence to us in the midst of darkness. And lastly, spiritual friendship is important because it's a core calling of the Christian life. Jesus, with his disciples, graduates them near the end of his life. And he says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that your jo- my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. And he says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. And then he says, I no longer call you servants. Because a servant does not know his master's business. He doesn't have a sense for his master's agenda. He just kind of reactively does what his master says, right? He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus says, I've graduated you from just being a ragtag group of fishermen and tax collectors and sinners to servants, to a rabbi-disciple relationship. But the final stage is spiritual friendship where you learn to receive my love, to live in my love, but then you learn to love each other in the way that I have loved you. And so developing these kinds of friendships in our lives is actually a core calling of discipleship. Now, I know whenever I talk about this kinds of friendship, in my own heart, and I'm sure in many people's hearts here, the question becomes, well, I don't really have friendships like that in my life. Why don't I have... Maybe you're in a stage of your life, or, or maybe you say, I don't even remember if I've ever had a relationship like that in my life ever. Or if I have, it's been a long time, and I don't have one right now. Why don't I have, I mean, I have friends, I have acquaintances, I know people, and that's good, but I don't have like that one person. I don't have the, the Jonathan to my David, the Ruth to my Naomi. Why not? Well, here's just four possibilities really quickly, and I don't want to do a deep dive. This is just to sort of say, maybe, the, you know, maybe explore these prayerfully. Number one, uh, you just might not be spiritually alive in Christ. And if you don't have Christ in common with someone, I would say I'm not, I don't understand a framework through which you could have the kind of spiritual deep connection friendship that I'm talking about. Because scripturally, friendship is never just between two people. It always involves God in some way, shape, or form. So I'm not convinced you can have a deep spiritual friendship if you don't have Christ in common. And not Christ as an abstract belief, like, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus, or yeah, I go to church. Again, not as an accessory to life, but like the fundamental pursuit of your life is to learn to honor Jesus. Uh, you might just not be asking for it because maybe you don't think you need it. Maybe you have adopted a posture of self-sufficiency. Maybe it comes out of wounding. Maybe it's just out of temperament, but you're like, you know what? I'm independent. I like it that way. It gives me freedom of movement. I don't want to be too invested in one person. I don't want to put that many eggs in one basket. And yet, this can lead to ever-increasing isolation. And so maybe it's simply a matter of you not recognizing that the way you're living is cutting off that friendship from taking place. And that's kind of the third one, is that maybe your life isn't simple or focused enough to actually receive one. You're so full of inputs. You're so full of activity. You're so you're really trying to have a broad scope of 
friendships at like the level four and three level that you don't have actual room in your life for a level two or level one friendship. And so you're inadvertently uh, kind of bloating your life with good but more um, limited, limited depth relationships instead of carving out time and saying, God, would you bring someone like this into my life? And then lastly, and this is probably uh, applicable to, to, I think, the majority of people, at least that I've talked to in my life. One of the reasons why we don't have friendships like this in our life is that we have not done the personal work that's necessary to create or sustain that kind of relationship. To move into deeper stages of friendship takes an increasing level of courage and care and vulnerability. And a lot of people get to a place in relationships along those levels of caring for other people, the courage to um, be honest and forthright and to um, be vulnerable and share their own weaknesses and insecurities and inadequacies. They get to a certain place and they're like, no, here's where I stop. And that comes out of all kinds of patterns of the past. But it's essentially a decision to say, this is where the relationship, I'm willing to go here, but after here it doesn't feel safe for me anymore, so I'm just stopping here. And a lot of people want safe relationships. They want relationships that will mitigate their need to grow and to grow up and to mature. But spiritual friendships, one of the things they have in common is that they're often born from within the furnace of suffering and hardship and hard work. The hard work inside of confronting foolish, immature patterns in your own life and the hard work of having difficult conversations again and again and working through plateaus in the relationship. Confronting things that need to be confronted. And a lot of people remove potential deep friendships from their lives because they're removing themselves from situations that require courage and vulnerability and growth. But what we need to understand is that you will, if you do that, have, you can still have levels of friendships, you can still have friends, you can have buds, um, but you will plateau. There will be a wall there and you will feel isolated. You will never experience a deep spiritual friendship with another person unless you intentionally move through um, that comfort zone and that little bubble of, well, this is kind of where I feel safe and comfortable and this is where I want to stay. Spiritual friendships, you've got to rupture that bubble, that safe space at some point. And that's why courses like Freedom Session or Emotionally Healthy Spirituality or books that are challenging you to understand why you're putting the brakes on in relationships why building intimacy is hard, why being vulnerable is something that you find all kinds of ways of pushing, uh, of diverting yourself away from. Courses like these are really important to help us grow in emotional maturity so that we can deepen relationships and move from kind of uh, a a set-up pattern of self-protection to one of self-giving and to experience the blessing that comes from that. That's why I'm really, really big on things like that. I've experienced a lot of um, challenge and growth and change in my own life as a result of Freedom Session. And uh, whenever I go through a resource like that, I just feel like in certain core relationships in my life, God challenges me to say, now we're gonna 
burst that comfort bubble and go here, and I never regret it. It's always scary. It's always unsettling, but I never, ever regret it. So as you can see, there's kind of a synergy between these two disciplines, solitude and spiritual friendship. They each kind of complement each other. Henry Nouwen says, solitude does not pull us away from our fellow human beings, but instead makes real fellowship possible. Because what solitude allows me to do is to bring my best self forward into a relationship. It allows me to, instead of moving into a friendship, being um, frenetic and scattered, in my mind and heart going in all kinds of directions, it allows me to receive from God, to be held in God's presence, and, in, and instead of moving into a relationship, running on empty, and being thirsty and needy, and grappling from the other person uh, my needs in a reactive way, I can come with a greater sense of fullness. And the question, I, the question that defines the relationship doesn't have to be, what are you going to do for me? It can be, how can I bless and serve you? And true f- spiritual friendship will encourage me to grow in times of solitude and private dependence on God because we don't need to spend all of our time together. And the relationship, like my relationship with Mike, is it's not the end. Like the point of it isn't to have that great relationship. The end of our relationship is we're both trying to grow and to follow through on what Jesus is calling us to do. So the relationship is a means to an end. That doesn't mean that Mike's a means to an end, but it just means that like, the whole point is we, we don't feel a burden to have to sustain the relationship ourselves because we have a common goal and a common anchor that's drawing us forward, and that's Jesus. And that means that in those relationships, when I spend time with Mike or some of the other people who occupy that space in my life, I actually find myself wanting to get alone with God because in the presence of a deep spiritual connection, you love connecting with that person, but it also gives you a hunger and thirst to connect with God more on a personal level. So there's a real synergy, again, two sides of the same coin. And in closing, that's what I would want everybody in this room to reflect on, that the basis upon which spiritual friendship is possible, the basis upon which solitude that's fruitful and transformative is possible is friendship with Christ. The famous preacher D.L. Moody said, A rule that I have had for years is to treat the Lord Jesus Christ as a personal friend. He's not a creed. He's not a mere doctrine. But it is he himself that we have. And one of the characteristics of a transformative solitude and friendship is that you can kind of relax into each context. You know you're with someone who's a deep spiritual friend. You have fellowship with a person. When you can kind of relax, when the pretense comes down, when you feel you can put your guard down and you can just relax and talk about what you need to talk about and share what you want to share about and you're not self-censoring and hesitating and wondering what they're going to think. You just know that you can be honest and vulnerable and it's the same when we're in solitude with God. There's an ease that you can bring into those relationships but if you are spiritually lost, if you are spiritually far from God, the Bible seems to indicate that there's going to be, even in the practice of solitude, even if you're trying to cultivate these spiritual depth relationships with friends, underneath those, the deepest tectonic plates of your heart, there's going to be a fundamental disease, a dis-ease, because you don't have peace with God. There's a spiritual alienation that is constantly running, running interference on your ability 
to connect meaningfully in solitude and with other image bearers of God. And that fundamental disease will eat away at the center of who you are and it will make it impossible, I would argue, to relax and do solitude with yourself and with God and relax into deep spiritual connection with other people. And so solitude and spiritual friendship are only possible in and through Jesus. And that's interesting because one of the titles the prophet Isaiah confers upon the Messiah is Prince of Peace. So this morning, a question that I would put before all of us is does does the Prince of Peace rule your heart? I'm not saying perfectly all the time in this kind of this manufactured, like, oh, yeah, I always experience peace. But I mean, like, is there on the bottom a fundamental ease and trust knowing that you are secure and held in the love of God? Do you live from a place of peace with God because you've accessed God's love and grace and mercy and forgiveness as a gift? Because if you haven't, then that sense of alienation and spiritual isolation, it's going to pervade your entire life. And the reason is because you're resisting or ignoring or simply walking away from the Prince of Peace. And therefore, you're cutting yourself off from the author of life. True and abiding peace that makes solitude and friendship at the deepest levels possible is only found in and through Jesus. So my challenge would be to come to him, receive grace from him this Christmas season, and begin to enjoy a friendship with him that will revolutionize your friendships with other people. Let's pray. God, we gather together here as a community of people seeking you. Maybe some of us here are suspicious, we're skeptical. We're holding you at arm's length for different reasons in our lives. But I pray that this week, God, we would move towards Christmas and, and the thought that would kind of pierce our hearts would be this title both a title and an invitation that you are the Prince of Peace, that we can have peace in you. And then if we seek peace in any other person or situation, that kind of ultimate peace, that cure for the, dis- the dis-ease that eats away at the very center of us, that we're, we're chasing after the wind. It's only to be found on you. Only on Christ the solid rock can our lives be uh, built and rooted in a way that allows us to move into life with peace and freedom and confidence. Help that truth to just rumble around in our head and heart all week long, God. In Jesus' name, amen.